Welcome to Freedom. Good morning. Good to see everybody this morning. Uh, if you're new to Freedom, one of the things that we do is we typically teach through books of the Bible. And currently we are going through the Gospel of Mark. Uh, we're going verse by verse through Mark's Gospel. We're going to be in Mark chapter 12 beginning in verse 18 today. And, uh, and so today we're in this middle of Holy Week called the Passion, which is one week that changed everything. And this week is, uh, we're actually on Tuesday of Holy Week in our study of the Gospel of Mark, and a lot happens on Tuesday. In fact, there are five confrontations that Jesus has with the religious leaders that all occur on Tuesday. Tuesday of Jesus' final week on, on this earth was a busy, busy day. And so there are five confrontations, and these religious leaders keep coming to Jesus, and they keep asking him questions. But they're not asking him questions to get an answer. They're asking him questions in order to trap him, in order to trick him. And the answers that Jesus gives to these questions will ultimately lead to his crucifixion. And today we're going to be looking at two different questions. So we got a lot to cover today. Uh, so uh, just hang in there. We're going to cover a lot of ground today. But uh, there are two questions. One is by the Sadducees. And it's a question about the resurrection. And the other question is by a scribe, and it is a question about the greatest commandment. In all of the Old Testament, what is the greatest commandment? And so let's dig into the, to the Sadducees first. And, and the reality is that most people, if you have a conversation with them, they, they find the question of life after death fascinating. Like, is there life after death? And if you look at many people's views, they vary widely. In fact, religious views on life after death vary widely. But Christianity has always had a strong doctrine and belief concerning life after death. Which makes sense, considering the fact that our doctrine, our beliefs, are based upon the teaching of Jesus, an empty tomb, and a resurrected and living Savior. So it makes sense that, that we have this strong belief in eternity, this strong doctrine of eternity. But we have to admit, there's a lot about eternity, about heaven, that is a mystery. Because we don't know all the precise details. The Bible teaches us a lot about eternity, but it doesn't teach us everything about eternity. And so we have a lot of questions. I don't know about you, but I have a lot of questions about what heaven is going to be like. So if you have your Bibles, let's turn to Mark chapter 12. We're going to look at verse 18. And the Sadducees, they came to Jesus, who say that there is no resurrection. And they asked him a question. Now let's stop right there. Let's learn a little bit about the Sadducees, because we need to understand who these men were in order to understand their question. So the Sadducees were this group of wealthy aristocrats that had a lot of political and temple influence. In fact, the majority of the seats in the Sanhedrin, and if you remember the Sanhedrin is the ruling council of the Jews, the majority of the seats in that ruling council were held by the Sadducees. Now theologically, the Sadducees had a lot of beliefs that contradict the Bible. See, the Sadducees, they only affirmed the first five books of the Old Testament. The Torah, the Pentateuch. They said any, all the other books, all the history books, 
all the prophecy books, all the literature books, all of those books in the Old Testament are, 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 not, are, are not included. They only affirmed those first five books, the Torah. And as a result of that, there were many things that they believed that, that are, go against Scripture. They denied God's involvement in our lives. They kind of were deists. They just believed that God started this whole thing and then left us to our own. Kind of took his hands off the wheel, so to speak. Not only that, they did, they did not believe in the resurrection of the dead. The Sadducees had no belief in resurrection, which we learned from Mark 12, 18, who believed that there is no resurrection. Not only that, they didn't believe in the supernatural. So the Sadducees didn't believe in demons and angels or anything supernatural, miracles. They didn't believe in any of that kind of stuff. Not only that, they didn't believe in an afterlife. They were a nihilist. In other words, when you die, that's it. You become worm food after death. That's what the Sadducees believed, which is why they are sad you see. There you go. That's how you can remember what they believe. Now, they come to Jesus with this hypothetical situation. And it's a ridiculous, absurd scenario that they come to Jesus with. And this question that they ask him, the heart of their question is, is this custom in Judaism called the Leverite marriage. And basically what the Leverite marriage meant, the custom was, that if, if a man marries a woman... And that man dies and leaves her childless, then a relative, typically a brother, would come along and marry her, and the firstborn son that he would have with her would be raised as his dead brother's heir. I know some of the by the looks on your faces, you're going, ew, that's gross. Like we look at that and we think, that's disgusting. Why would you go and marry your brother's wife? Like, that's gross. But here's the, the, the reality of it is it was actually a noble concept, a noble idea found in Deuteronomy 25. And the reason and purpose behind the Leverite marriage was to keep the family name from dying out. The purpose was to keep the family wealth and inheritance intact. We see this played out in the book of Ruth where Boaz marries Ruth in order to continue Naomi and Ruth's husband's family name. Boaz was a distant relative of theirs, and he married Ruth as a kinsman redeemer in order to bring honor and to keep the inheritance of that family intact. So it was an honorable system. So here's the scenario. Look at verse 19 that they give to Jesus. And it says, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but leaves no child, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. There's the Leverite marriage right there in Scripture. There were seven brothers. Here's the scenario. The first took a wife, and when he died, he left no offspring. And the second took her and died, leaving no offspring. And the third, likewise... And the seven left no offspring. Last of all, the woman also died. And look at verse, verse uh, 23. Here's our question. In the resurrection, when they rise again, whose wife will she be? For the seven had her as 
wife. So they're, they're, they're trying to bring this absurd, ridiculous scenario to Jesus to show the absurdity of Jesus' teaching on the resurrection. But clearly this woman has problems with men. She married seven of them and all of them died. Instead of trying to disprove the resurrection, the Sadducees should have been asking, what on earth is this woman cooking? What is she putting in those falafels that are killing off these men one by one? But that's not the question they asked. They, they want to bring this, this idea and, and disprove the resurrection because the Sadducees didn't believe in a resurrection. But the Pharisees and other religious, in other religious circles, they believed in a resurrection. But here was their belief about the afterlife. They kind of viewed the afterlife as a 2.0 version of this life. They really kind of believed that, that, that the afterlife, life after death, was just kind of an upgrade, 2.0 of this life. So that was, their, that was the, the commonly held belief. So get this, if this woman had seven husbands, and the next life is an upgrade of this life, that creates a problem for eternity, doesn't it? Whose wife is she going to be? This could create a lot of drama in heaven. But that was their belief, that this life was just kind of an upgrade of the next life. So, so when Jesus answers them, he's actually answering the Sadducees' question, and he's correcting the Pharisees' misheld beliefs. And look what he says in verse 24. He says to them, you're wrong. Don't you love Jesus? He's like, hey guys, you're wrong. He's not afraid. Look what he says in verse 24. Jesus said to them, is this not the reason that you are wrong? Because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. He says, guys, you're wrong, and the reason you're wrong is because you're ignorant of God's word, and you're ignorant of God's power. You don't know the word of God, and you don't know the power of God. In fact, every single misheld belief can be traced back to those two truths, can it? Cults have been started because people didn't understand the word of God or the power of God. Misheld beliefs all start with the fact that people don't know the Word of God and they're ignorant of the power of God. All theological errors can be traced back to these two ideas. What I love about this is Jesus, in this moment, accuses the religious elite of being wrong in the thing that they think they're experts at. Isn't that great? He says, guys, the thing you think you know the most, the Torah, the Word of God, is the thing you actually know the least. And because they misunderstood the Bible, they misunderstood God. Because they misunderstood Scripture, they had a faulty view of who God is. And here's the reality, church, misinterpreting the Scriptures, misinterpreting God's word inevitably leads to a distorted view of God. If you and I don't understand God's word, if we don't understand the word of God, we're going to have a God that is too small and too powerless to be the God of the Bible. 
And that's exactly what the Sadducees had. That's what the Pharisees had. And so Jesus addresses their question head on in verse 25. He addresses this idea of marriage, and he says this in verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. So he addresses this, their ignorance of God's power. What is Jesus saying here? Jesus is showing that those of us who are his children, those of us who are his followers, when we die, we will live for all eternity in an entirely new reality. Revelation 21 says that, that, that this new heaven and new earth will be formed. Why? Because the old heaven and the old earth will pass away. So God is creating an entirely new reality for us that we will live in for all eternity. Yes, there will be some continuity between this life and the next. I will be me and you will be you. But a lot is going to be different. Heaven is not 2.0 of this earth. It's far greater. And let's be honest, people have some bizarre views of heaven, don't they? Like, some people view heaven as like this endless sing-along where we just all grab hands and sing kumbaya for eternity. Sounds miserable, doesn't it? Others have this cartoon version of, of heaven where we're all sitting on clouds with angels playing harps in our diapers. I mean, it's terrible. <laughs> terrible view of heaven. Some view heaven as this realm of just kind of these disembodied spirits floating around. I mean, movies portray heaven in a lot of different ways. Anybody seen Gladiator? Some of you, what is the view of heaven in Gladiator? It's Russell Crowe walking through this monochrome blue scene with rolling hills with wheat grass growing at his waist, and he's just walking toward his wife and his son. Filled of dreams. When the guy, when the dead man walks out of the, the cornfield into the baseball field, and he goes, oh, is this heaven? No, it's Iowa. So apparently heaven looks like Iowa. According to the field of dreams, if you've seen all dogs go to heaven, it's a constant 73 degrees with dogs playing harps on clouds in heaven. Songs are filled with images of heaven, aren't they? Hank saying, if heaven ain't a lot like Dixie, I don't want to go. <laughs> Bob Dylan, Guns N' Roses, saying, knock, knock, knocking on heaven's door. Eric Clapton asked, would you know my name if you saw me in heaven? And then the great theologian, Billy Ray Cyrus, in his song, Redneck Heaven, envisioning, envisioned seeing Conway Twitty, Keith Whitley, Hank Sr., Elvis, and Patsy Cline, all in heaven. Sounds a lot like hell, doesn't it? But anyway, that just depends on your theological beliefs. Anyway... What's even worse than, than, our, than most people's view of heaven is how do we get to wherever you're going? How do we actually get to heaven? A lot of people believe, well, you just need to be moral, or you just need to be sincere, or you just need to be better than the guy next to you. A lot of people, in fact, believe that everybody's going to get to heaven. But we need to hear from Jesus, don't we? Jesus came from heaven, so he should know a thing or two about heaven. But the challenge is that we don't know everything about heaven because the Bible doesn't tell us everything about heaven. What do we do know? 
We do know that when you and I get to heaven, we will receive a new body one day. A new resurrected body that is free of disease, free of suffering, free of sin. God himself will satisfy us for eternity. We will be completely and fully satisfied in God. We will be gathered with a multitude of believers from from every tribe, every tongue, every nation, and we will worship and we will serve Jesus for all eternity. That we know about heaven. But what about our relationships here on earth? What about the relationships we enjoy now? What will they be like in heaven? I think what Jesus is saying in this text is that the relationships that we enjoy now will be transformed in the next life. They will be greater. They will be more wonderful, but they will be different. So he addresses the Sadducees and he says, there will be a resurrection. But he also says, there will be no marriage relationship as we know it. And he says, we will become like angels. So let's talk about those. What does it mean that we will be like angels? It doesn't mean that you and I are going to sit on clouds playing harps for all of eternity. It doesn't even mean that we're going to be angels. He's not saying that we're going to, when we die, turn into angels. No, what is he saying? He says that we will be like angels in this, that we'll no longer marry, we'll no longer procreate, we'll have perfect harmony with God, we will never die, and we will never feel any discontentment. We will be like angels in those ways. But what about marriage? What will marriage be like in heaven? Now, this is a difficult concept for us because we have to admit we don't know. We don't 100% know. But, but, but think about just for a moment the reasons God has given us the gift of marriage. Companionship. Procreation. Sexual fulfillment. And an illustration of Christ and his church. Those are the primary reasons God has given us marriage. Now think about this. In heaven, all of those reasons are fully met and fully fulfilled in heaven. There's no longer a need to be an illustration for Christ and his church. Why? Because Christ and his church are united. We as followers of Christ are united with him. Now, I think you will know your spouse in heaven. I think you'll be able to love your spouse in heaven. By the way, the sign of a good marriage is that you actually want to be married to them eternally. If you're sitting here thinking, man, I hope not, (laughs) let me recommend some marriage counseling. Listen, I will be more capable of loving Nicole in heaven, and she will be more capable of loving me in heaven. Why? Because we won't have any sin, and she has a lot of it. So heaven will be great for me. In all seriousness, the bottom line is this. Though we don't know all the answers, we do know that whatever pleasure we have and enjoy in this life will be beyond our imagination in the next life. Whatever joy we experience in this life, We will experience joy beyond our imagination in the next life. Whatever fulfillment we have in this life, we will be fulfilled beyond our imagination in the next life. 
Now I want to say a word to single people. Because some of you are single, and I don't want to dampen your views of marriage. If you're single, I don't want you to, to have this distorted, dampened view of marriage. I, you know, one day I do hope that you get to marriage, but I hope in this glimpse of the future, you will see that marriage is not the end-all, be-all of life. So I think we've got this idea in our culture that marriage is the end-all, be-all. But here's what I want you to know. You're not missing out on the most important thing in life if you're not married. Jesus is the most important thing in life. Jesus is the most important thing in our lives. Not getting married, not staying married. Jesus is the most important thing. So when we think about heaven, we need to think about that it is primarily about Jesus and his glory. It is primarily about being with Jesus, worshiping him, serving him for all eternity. So I think oftentimes we have this idea, and I don't want us to think about heaven, it's primarily a reunite, being reunited with our loved ones. Will we be reunited with our loved ones who have gone before us if they love Jesus? Yes. But that is not the primary reason for heaven. That is not the primary view we should have of heaven. Our primary view of heaven should be the fact that we will be able to worship in the glory of Jesus for all eternity. Eternity, heaven, is about his glory. It is all about him. And so our relationship with Jesus will be so intense and so filled with love and affection that all earthly marital bliss and all earthly relationships, as much as we enjoy them, as much as we find pleasure in them, will seem shallow and small in comparison. Why? Because heaven is about Jesus and his glory. No one will be disappointed in any way when we're all in heaven. No one would be deprived of one thing that is necessary for maximum joy, optimal happiness, and complete satisfaction. Never will we think, oh, I wish I had fill in the blank in heaven. It's just not going to happen. But Jesus goes on in verse 26. And he says this, And as far as the dead being raised... You have, not, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the passage about the bush? Now, let's stop right there just for a second. Have you ever thought about a scripture and you don't know the chapter and verse? Anybody ever done that? Well, good. You're in good company because look what Jesus does. He goes, you know, the one, the one about the bush? You know that passage about the bush? I can't remember the verse and the chapter, but the passage about the bush, remember that one? That's what Jesus says. He says, you know, the book of Moses and the passage about the bush. And how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, and the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And then look what he says. You are quite wrong. What's he doing? He's addressing their lack of knowledge of the word of God. He is addressing their ignorance of God's word. So he takes them to the heart of the Torah. He takes them to Exodus chapter 3, verse 6. When God met, met Moses in the burning bush. And what does God say to Moses? He says, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And you need to understand, these men have been dead for hundreds, if not thousands of years. And God is saying, I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, 
And Jacob, what is he saying? He said, once God's people die, they don't cease being God's people. They live with him forever. They are forever God's people. So it's ridiculous for us to say, and it's ridiculous for God to say, that he is the God of men who have no existence. Remember, the Pharisees believed once you die, that was it. Worm food. And so here, Jesus is saying, it would be ridiculous for God to say that he's the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because those men have been dead for centuries. So the fact that God says that he is the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob means that they are alive and awaiting the resurrection. Because God is the God of the living, not the God of the dead. So Jesus is saying that God, get this, made an everlasting covenant with the patriarchs, with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And because he made an everlasting covenant, it is inconceivable to think that God ends this covenant relationship the moment people die. It is an everlasting, eternal covenant. God is the God of the living. And since God is the God of the living, and he says that he is still their God, even though they had died centuries earlier, then they must be alive and the resurrection must be coming. That's what Jesus is saying. That's why he says you are quite wrong. What does this mean for us? This is the good news. It means the moment that you and I are born again, the moment you and I place our faith in Jesus Christ, we enter into eternal life. Now, it doesn't mean that the moment we get saved, God takes us up into heaven, but it means that the moment we get saved, we enter into this covenant relationship with God the Father through the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and his resurrection. The moment we receive Jesus, the moment we place our faith in Jesus, we enter into eternal life. We enter into this covenant relationship that is for eternity. And so as followers of Christ, when we die, we immediately go to be with him. When we are absent from our body, Scripture says that we are present with the Lord. In other words, our soul is in his presence, awaiting the resurrection of the dead at the end times. When our bodies will be raised again, the new heaven and new earth will be created, and we will dwell with him forever and ever and ever in a new body, in the new heaven and the new earth. That's what Jesus is pointing out here. And that's the hope that we have in this text. But I want to go back to verse 24 just for a second. Before we look at the scribe, I think it's important for us to go back and understand what Jesus says. He says, you are wrong because you neither know the scriptures nor the power of God. What this tells me, that even religious people can be wrong. Even you and I who attend church on a regular basis can be wrong. We can be wrong about God's word. We can be wrong about God's power. And here's the reality. If we don't know the scriptures, and if we don't understand the power of God, everything else in our lives will be messed up. We will be wrong. Why do I say that? Because God's word is the ultimate authority of our lives. God's word is the ultimate authority of our lives. 
And what this means is we, the way we live our lives proves what we believe about the authority of Scripture. If we live our lives based on the authority of God's Word, then it shows that we believe God's Word is an authority. But if we live our lives in opposition to God's Word, it means we don't believe that God's Word is authority. And Jesus would look at us and say, you're wrong. Why? Because God's Word is what we're to build our lives upon. We're to yield ourselves to the power of God. We're to submit ourselves to the authority of God. We're to trust God, love God, know God. And this only happens when we know His Word. When we follow and obey His Word. Which is why, church, we should be a place with a big God and a worn-out Bible. We should be a place with a big, big God, believing the promises of God are true, and a worn-out Bible because we know the promises from His Word. We have to study Scripture and know Scripture, not just on Sundays, but throughout the week where we can walk and believe His promises are true because we know His promises from Scripture. If we don't know His promises, how on earth are we going to believe His promises? Which is why on February 27th, we're going to start a six-week equipping class. It's going to be Sunday mornings at 9 a.m. And it's going to be designed to teach us how to study the Bible. Have you ever wondered, how do you, how do you study Scripture for yourself? How do you feed yourself and just, instead of just coming on Sundays and, and, and receiving what, what I've chewed on all week? How do you actually get into God's Word and, and have it get into your life Well, Sundays, beginning February 27th, we're going to dive into this. For six weeks, we're going to teach you how to study Scripture in one of our equipping classes. We're going to teach you and show you how do you actually open God's Word on a regular basis, dig into God's Word, and feed yourself spiritually so that you can have a big God and a worn-out Bible. So I encourage you, mark your calendar for February 27th. It's going to be in the house next door in our offices. We're going to do that from 9 o'clock to about 10, 10, 15. And just going to dive in teaching you. And it's for everybody, students, adults, doesn't matter. Come, learn how to study God's Word for yourself. Let's make a hard shift to the scribe. Because the scribe comes next. He's the next one that asks Jesus a question. Now, the scribe is commendable in a lot of ways. He doesn't come to Jesus like all the other people. He actually comes to Jesus seeking an answer. But it ties into this whole idea of the life after death, the kingdom of God. Because at the end of this story, in verse 34, look what Jesus says to him. He says, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Jesus looks at this scribe and says, you're not far from entering the kingdom. Which raises a couple of questions, doesn't it? What made him near... And why wasn't he in? Why did Jesus say to him, you're close, but not yet in? Look at verse 28. And one of the scribes came, and he heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, seeing that Jesus answered him well, he asked them, which commandment is the most important of all? Now, this was a common discussion that scribes and Pharisees had. They would often discuss what is the most important commandment. Of all the 600 plus commandments in the Old Testament, which one is the most important? And so Jesus answers them because this would have been a common debate. And, And notice he's not trying to trap Jesus. 
He's actually curious about what Jesus is asking, he's at, or, or would answer. He's actually earnestly wanting to know what Jesus thinks. He comes with sincerity. He comes with humility. He looks at him and says, teacher. And it doesn't say, like he says in the other, past, other con, uh, uh, encounters with religious folks, it doesn't say he was coming to trap him. I think he actually wanted to know. Because Jesus gives us clues to that, saying that he's close to the kingdom, but not yet in. And Jesus answers, and he quotes the Shema, Deuteronomy 6. Love the Lord your God with everything. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, strength. Love God with everything. But then Jesus adds Leviticus 19. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, everyone would expect Jesus to answer with the Shema. Everyone would expect Jesus to say, Deuteronomy 6, love the Lord your God with everything. What they didn't expect is love your neighbor as yourself. Because you see, the religious leaders didn't view their neighbor in a kind and loving way. In fact, they didn't view you as a neighbor unless you looked like them, acted like them, talked like them, basically were them. And in that time, temple worship was not kind to neighbors. People were abused in the temple. They were used in the temple. They were taken advantage of in the temple. So the fact that Jesus throws in this idea of love your neighbor as yourself would have been shocking and revolutionary. And notice what the response was from the scribe. In verse 32, he answered him and said, You are right. What's he doing? He's agreeing with Jesus. This scribe is so near to the kingdom of God. He's so near to spending eternity in heaven with God. He affirms, and then he even adds application to Jesus' words. Look at verse 33. And to love him with all the heart, with all the understanding, with all your strength, and to love one's neighbor as oneself is much more than all whole burnt offerings and sacrifices. So look what he's saying. He's saying, listen, Jesus, I get it. Loving God, loving your neighbor is better than all of these sacrifices that are going on around us. Remember, this is Passover. So in the background, there would have been sacrifice after sacrifice after sacrifice happening while they're having this conversation. And so the scribe says, listen, Jesus, I get it. All of those sacrifices are nothing if we don't love God and love our neighbor. And Jesus says, you were close to the kingdom of God. You were not far from the kingdom of God. This was both a compliment and a warning. It was a compliment and a warning. You can be close, but not in. So the important question we have to ask, why was he not in? Why was he close, but not in? Here's what I believe. I believe that he was close, but not in, because he had theological clarification, but didn't grasp personal obligation. He had theological knowledge without personal responsibility. It's one thing for us to get all the commandments right. It's one thing for us to win the Bible drill and know all the verses. It's a whole other thing for us to apply it to our lives personally. It's a whole other thing for us to see 
our personal need for a Savior. So you and I need a Savior. Why? Because we can't keep the commandments. We have no shot at keeping the 600 plus commandments in the Old Testament. We don't even have a shot at keeping the 10, the top 10 list that God gave to Moses. Listen, folks, we don't even have the ability within ourselves to keep the two that Jesus gave the scribe. You and I do not have the ability to love God fully and love our neighbor fully all the time. We just don't. And so the guy's answer should not have been, good answer, Jesus. The guy's answer should have been, I am ruined for I am a sinner. And he should have repented. He should have turned from his sin knowing that he could not keep God's law perfectly. None of us can. This guy was not in the kingdom because it had not become personal. Which begs the question, has it become personal for you? Have you internalized it? Has it become personal for you? You can know all the Bible answers and not know Jesus. So we have to ask yourself, do I know Jesus? Do I know him personally? See, Jesus is going to show us in just a few days what love of God and love of neighbor looks like. This is Tuesday, but on Friday... Jesus is going to demonstrate in a very real way what love of God and love of neighbor looks like. Paul spoke about this in Romans 5 verse 8 and he says, But God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. You see, Jesus throughout this whole week has shown us that all the things that man has placed for our salvation, all the things that we think will earn us salvation, all fall short. All are insufficient. What has he shown us? Morality doesn't get you to heaven. Because none of us are perfect. Sincerity doesn't get you to heaven. The scribe was sincere, but he's still not in. Sacrifice, religious duties are insufficient. Theological knowledge is not enough. What is sufficient? Who is sufficient? Only Jesus is sufficient for our salvation. That's what he's showing us. How can we be in the kingdom of God? Only the king can get us into the kingdom. Only surrendering to the king can get us into the kingdom. Why? Because he lived the life we could not live. He never, never failed at keeping the law. He kept it perfectly from the moment he was born to the moment he died. So he lived the life we could not live and he died the death we all deserve. Our sin separates us from, from God. But Jesus took on God's wrath on that cross for our sin. And he says to each and every one of us, if we will turn from our sins and place our trust in his sufficiency, the sufficiency of his cross and his resurrection then each and every one of us can be in the kingdom. This passage of Scripture closes, and it says, And after that, no one dared ask him any more questions. What is this saying? It's pointing to his death. 
See, they could never trap him, so they choose to kill him. But his death on the cross is what opens up the kingdom to each and every one of us. So two words of hope as we close out this message. The first is this. There's hope for sinners. You know who enters the kingdom of God? Sinners. Isn't that good news? It's sinners who are welcomed in to the kingdom of God. How? By trusting in the sufficiency of Christ's death and resurrection. And there's also hope for those who are far and those who are close but not yet into the kingdom. See, some of you are in the kingdom. Some of you know Jesus. Some of you are walking with Jesus. And we, can, we have rejoice in that and have hope in that. But there's others that you're far from the kingdom of God. You have no real interest in the kingdom of God right now. But there's hope for you. As long as you have breath, there is hope for you. That Jesus died for your sins. That he rose again three days later. And he invites you into the kingdom. Now some of you are near to the kingdom, but not yet in. Why? Because you haven't made it personal. It's this idea out there, but it's not your idea. It's not personal to you. You haven't personally surrendered your life to Jesus. You haven't personally repented of your sins. And there's hope because Jesus is showing us that heaven is real, that the resurrection is real, that one day we can spend eternity with him. The only door by which sinners enter into the kingdom of God is through Jesus Christ. And we must enter by his blood and his righteousness, not our own. And when we do enter, we are made alive in Christ. And one day, we will be raised with Christ. So if you are near, but not yet in, if you've not made it personal, make it today. Make it personal for you today. Surrender your life to him today. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the power of your word. Jesus, you said that we, we're wrong when we don't understand the scriptures and we don't understand your power. And Father, I pray first and foremost for those that may be here this morning or watching online that are near but not yet in. They're like the scribe and they've never made it personal. Yeah, they understand the Bible answers. They can answer how we get to heaven. They can answer what Jesus did for us on the cross, but they've never made it personal. They've never made it theirs. And Lord, I pray that today they would stop borrowing faith from those around them and make faith their own. And if that's you, just simply say, Jesus, today I surrender my life to you. Today I want to repent of my sin. I want to trust in your sufficiency, your death on the cross for my sin, your resurrection to provide me with eternal life. And just surrender to him today. Make it personal. And so, Father, I pray that anyone that's listening online or in this room, that, it, that the day would be the day of salvation. That today would be the day that they surrender their life to you. Because we know from your teaching that the resurrection is real, that heaven is real. And one day we get to spend eternity with you because eternity is all about you and your glory. And so, Father, help us to know the scriptures, to know your promises, to know your power in real and personal ways. 
And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, church, we're going to conclude with a time of worship and a time of celebrating the salvation that we have through communion. So in the four stations all throughout the room, we invite you to go and participate and partake of communion. Uh, you can do so with family and friends. But just if you are a follower of Jesus, this is an opportunity for you to rejoice, for you to celebrate, for you to worship this powerful God that has given his life for us, that lived the life none of us could ever live, died the death that we all deserve. And when we go to this table and we take that bread, which represents his broken body, and that cup, which represents his shed blood, we rejoice because we have hope. We have hope for eternity because of his sufficiency. And if you're here this morning, you've never placed your faith in Jesus. And maybe today you did. Maybe today this is your first communion as a follower of Christ. Here's my encouragement to you. Tell someone. I'll be up front. You can come tell me. Robert, one of our elders over here, come tell him. Grab somebody and tell them, today I gave my life to Jesus Christ. Today I surrendered my life. I made it personal today. And then enjoy communion and celebrate this power that Christ has brought into your life. The power of God. The transforming, redeeming power of God. So let's stand, church. Let's worship. Let's rest in the hope of his sufficiency.